Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We have a new segment this week where we answer your questions. That's if we're able to. So if you have a question you want to ask us, write to us at Politicon on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for next week's show. We've been inundated with questions and we'll try to get to most of them. This episode is sponsored by Hydrant, Magic Spoon, and Steady MD. We thank them for their support of the podcast, and we thank you for listening. And please tell your friends and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, we got a lot to talk about, but was it really a week ago that we did this podcast? It seems like a year. So much. I mean, polls, national and state Uh, show it's time to rev up the bus the fat lady singing this presidential race is over (laughs) trump got COVID 19 and predictably it brought out all of his evil uh that charade pep rally for amy barrett at the white house uh was an infectious landmine then he got the COVID 19 went to water reed forced secret service agents to drive him around outside risking their lives or their health at least to salve his insecure ego. And he went to, and actually before that, he went to a fundraiser when he knew he had it up in New Jersey. You know, look, uh, nothing he does surprises us. I'm going to tell you one thing, James. That is, I am a little scared. 26 days to go, facing a big defeat. He has no morals or guardrails. What might he do? Yeah, I, I look, I don't know. And, and you know, I wish we'd have had a, a medical professional to tell us what the side effects of his steroids are. But a friend of mine who's doing well, but had uh, colon cancer, you know, had to take it before treatment. And he said, man, that's going to take you crazy. Uh, but besides that, I think there were two really interesting and significant events. The first one was John Cronin, the, the Republican incumbent in Texas, went to the Houston Chronicle and criticized Trump response to the virus. That immediately tells you he's getting slaughtered on the west side of Houston and, you know, woodlands and these kind of places. I mean, he's trying in Texas. And then last night. Districts that used to vote for George Bush. Yes. Yes. This is exactly. These are that he he is getting killed by, you know, white college in Texas on the virus. And then last night in Arizona, Martha McSally refused to to kind of say things, nice things about Trump. And they kept pressing him. Now, the Arizona Republicans, there's no lack of, of right-wing Republicans in Arizona. But the fact that she is in a race and is, and is distancing, you've got two people, and in, in, she's almost an impossible race. She's going to lose. Cronin is in a tough race that most people think he'll probably in the end win. I'm not sure they're right. And I think you're going to see more and more of this. I wouldn't be, you know, you, you're going to see people trying to distance themselves from him. Yeah, you do. You know, one thing that it's taken some people a long time to learn, the latest person who should have learned it learned it was the White House physician. Uh, and that is that when you lie down with dogs, you get fleas. Uh, this was, a, he got COVID-19, the president got COVID-19. I think most people thought, gosh, I hope he's going to be all right, even those of us that can't stand him politically. But instead, what they do is that they lie and they fabricate and they try to spin this uh, and they make it far, far worse. And that's why the Cornyns and the McSallies are in a squeeze. And of course, you would say to them, where have you been the last four years, John and Martha? So tonight, it's, a friend of mine pointed out, the infection rate 
on just the White House campus at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is currently 23 times the entire country of New Zealand. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Just that block. So you've covered politics, you've covered people, I've been in it. The, the, the greatest aspiration for anybody is to be in the White House, to be working the White House, to be an advisor, be a journalist, be, a, be anything like that. It is probably, it is not probably, I could not imagine a more miserable place to work now. Oh my God. I, the New York Times is not, the, the news organization not even allowing their reporters on the ground. Well, because three, at least three reporters have contracted. Right. You, you know, the White House, White House press secretary comes out, they're proudly not wearing a mask. Secret service. Yeah. What about the people that work in the White House mess? James, I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock you. This will shock you. They don't care about those people. They just don't care. <laughs> they really don't. They really don't. It is, I, I, and I don't, look, I do not want Trump to die from this at all because I want him to go to the penitentiary. <laughs> that, that's, and that's where he's going. I promise you. And he knows it. That's why it scares me right now. Right. No, it should scare you. I think one of the most disappointing things for me last week was uh, Father Jenkins, the uh, president of Notre Dame, prestigious university, prestigious educator. First of all, he should never have gone to the pep rally, political partisan pep rally for the nomination of Amy Barrett at the White House. I mean, it's fine for him to endorse his former law professor. Uh, if he wants to do that, that's fine. But, uh, you know, that's his prerogative to endorse Judge Barrett. But he shouldn't have gone to that pep rally at the White House. I'll tell you this a story. They did something fairly similar indoors when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. And they told the Supreme Court members, this is just going to be routine. And they got there and Trump sandbagged them. He turned it into some kind of really partisan, partisan rally again. So you knew it. And then for Father Jenkins, who's insisting on social distancing at Notre Dame, and kids can get kicked out if they don't socially distance, to go 200 people and not wear a mask. You know, I think he's been an admirable man. He heads a fabulous university, but that really, really was just terribly disappointing. Yeah, I, I think that I think the Notre Dame of today is not quite the Notre Dame you want to remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you know, look, Paul Jenkins brought in Obama there and caused a big brouhaha in two thousand nine. Right. I, I, I think these right wingers have got a pretty good toehold in there now. Yeah. And no, not not to say there's not this thousand top rank academics at Notre Dame. It's obviously a, a very fine institution, but it, 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 it's not Father Hepsburg. I mean, the, the, the bill, you know, remember Bill Barr gave this famous speech about curbs on human rapacity at Notre Dame. And, and, and that, that board, you know, Father Jenkins has a, a lot of influence interest he's trying to balance, but he did not do himself. I mean, it, and these colleges are like kicked, I had a friend of mine, kid at Tulane, got kicked out of having a party in his apartment with 12 people in. I mean, just boom, he's gone. Right. And I mean, A, as I say, he shouldn't have gone. Uh, B, he should have worn a mask. I, uh, it's just incredibly disappointing. Hey, uh, you know, before we turn on to some really fascinating guests, let me just go through, let's do just a little bit of politics. We agree the presidential race is over. We'll discuss that, uh, you know, in the ensuing weeks. Uh, let's just go to Congress. I, I've been talking to some people in the House, uh, and, you know, Democrats are going to pick up, you know, maybe 15 House seats 
that was not thought possible a year ago. And give me where do you what's your outlook in the Senate now? Well, but what happens is everybody says, well, there are competitive races in there are 10 competitive races. So you figure, well, you should get five. It, it, it generally does not work that way. You're more likely to get two or eight. Mm-hmm. All right. In most years, the, 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 all of the close ones tend to fall a certain way. And it, you know, right now, I'll be very optimistic that we'll be well over. You know, I think we'll be closer to 55 than 50. I really do. Because I just can't see how, given the current environment and the current national mood, and, you, you know, you just keep hearing Republican posters telling people we're doomed. And it, it, it got bad over the weekend. It was obviously got bad after the debate. So I, if I had to bet, I'd bet, I'd bet we write at 55 seats. I really would. And I, that's really optimistic. That's, re, that's really, I, I wouldn't bet that. If you gave me some odds, I'd take it. But that's a high optimistic number. But yeah, it is, but it's it's the trend, it's the direction. At least I'm talking to the Michelangelo of uh, American political elections, but it also strikes me, you know, in all that I've covered, that when it's really close at the end, the vast majority of times it breaks against the incumbent. Yeah, it, that seemed, you know, uh, Nate Silver had a piece, and you know, the usual was pretty detailed, but it 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 kind of broke a little bit for Obama in 2012, but you know, and. The other thing, you know, we were a challenge in 92 at Washington World with my students. We actually were more ahead than the vote did, but Perot had a lot to do with that. All right. So I, I wouldn't say 92 is, 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 is a good example, but I, and I'm, and I'm very comfortable in telling our listeners and you all because you've covered more elections than I've been in. Close call. That they generally it breaks the incumbent's way. Right. I mean, a non-incumbent way. That, that right. that's a pretty general but accurate rule to make about American politics. Yep, yep. And now the the generally the way people do it is you take the incumbent's vote, add what you think the third party vote is, and then subtract from a hundred, and you end up with the challenge. That is not a crazy exercise. So if you look at, if you, it would produce this result. If you took the CNN poll, NBC Wall Street Journal poll, and they're both telephone polls, and CNN has got hooked up with a, what I think a more competent outfit than they had before. <laughs> Trump said, he said 40. Now, I, that's a ridiculous low number. If we think the third party vote is two, then that produces a result of, you, you ready? Yeah, yeah. 5840 biggest landslide since 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 Ronald Reagan in 1932 oh, way bigger than Reagan I think no the 84 84 over Mondale 84 was yeah. that big yeah but but it, but it's it, it's one of the largest landslides in American in recent history yeah but, but it, Reagan didn't carry as I recall he didn't carry much with the Congress with him did he, he didn't he did not he did it he curiously did it, yeah, an eighty with a much smaller margin. But um, no, I, I, you know, I think you're right. I, uh, I think the third party vote will probably be somewhere between three and four. Uh, but uh, that's uh, you can't. Trump just never gets above forty-one or forty-two, even even in his most optimistic uh, polls. So anyway, I, I could see. I don't, you know, I, I just want to 
tell our listeners, it's some chance that this partisanship kicks in, but the, in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which we both agree is the gold standard of all public polling. Along with Ann Seltzer. Significant <laughs> drop in Republican identifiers. Now, they usually come in at plus six Democratic. They were plus nine. All right. We did a battleground poll two weeks ago. And and every poll does this. And to just bring our, our audience to, to look behind the door is you, you put certain tripwires in there to see if because sometimes your samples are just wrong. I mean, it just is 19 times out of 100. They're wrong and probably 15 times out of 20, 19 times out of 20. We had on the voter recall, we had, it was even. So who'd you vote for in 2016? It, it was that it was even was remarkable. There's more people say that recall voting for the winner. And it jumped to six. And we never wait for that, but we just, we just, we waited it to three. But it's just internally uncomfortable with that big a jump. But that does mesh with what the NBC Wall Street Journal poll said that they got more Democrats. And every time that you talk to a pollster, they'll say, well, it was a heavily Democratic sample. And I think that's a function of people are just not identifying with the Republican Party. At least I hope that is. But that's what's going on underneath in poll. No, I and and if you you know I, what I like to do, I, I do two things when I when I look at a poll. Some are better than others. Uh, first, I like to compare the state polls to the national polls because you know if 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 Biden is winning by. 10, 12, 14 nationally, he's going to be ahead in Ohio. He's going to be ahead in Florida. And they pretty much track. State polls are a little bit closer than those two national polls suggest. And the second thing is just to look at their demographics and compare them to last time. And every state poll I've seen in Arizona and Florida and Michigan and Pennsylvania, the demographics, uh, if anything, uh, they I think they're pretty down the middle, but if anything, they tilt a little bit uh, are. So uh, there's just uh, there's no question that uh, there's a uh, overall consensus on this. And the great myth is that there's this huge hidden Trump vote didn't exist last time, doesn't exist now. So one thing that's really valuable is Dave Wasserman swing a meter and he got these mathematical wizards. And they ran, if you had exact same performance among, you know, non-college whites, non-white, boom, 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 in each state, what would that produce in 2020? And Biden wins. If he gets the same turnout, the same everything across the board that Hillary got in 2016, he would win this election. And he can go to every state and you can see percent non-college white, percent college white, percent non-white, you know, percent black, Latino. And, and it's a it's a really good exercise. And, and I, I think what's going to happen, of course, is not going to replicate the demographic model of 2016. I think you're going to have a, we're going to get more non-college white votes. By, I think it's going to be one of the big surprises. You make an excellent point. And it's the same amount of seniors, that seniors are really changing. Oh, biggest Biggest turnaround. It's going to be a remarkable turnaround. Right. Uh, uh, it really, I mean, like plus 20 turnaround. So, so the point is, if we just did everything we did in 2016, and I even mentioned the year because it sends people into <laughs> suicidal depression, we would win. We would win. 
If, if, and we got the same portion of everything else just because they're more college-educated people and the percentage of white to non-white is, is rising. It's a fascinating exercise. I, I recommend it to any political junkie. All right. Well, this is uh, – we, we, we got some interesting guests to turn to. Well, I just want to tell our listeners that if Albert Hunt says we're going to pick up 15 Senate seats, you bet. House. Minus. House. I mean, not Senate, but House seats. Yeah. House seats, I'm talking Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can bet plus or minus two. <laughs> It'd be uh, somewhere between 13 and 17. I fully believe that. All right. You hold me accountable. Okay. Hey, James, in politics like sports, staying hydrated can make or break you. Ask LeBron James. Yeah. You know, Al, I'm be 76 this month, and I've been running 350 days a year since 1981. This stuff is really good. I, I can recommend it to anybody that exercises, particularly if you're, you're older, I'm excited about these guys sponsoring our show. It, it's a really top flight product. Let's give it to Joe Biden the next couple of weeks. Listen, it's made with real fruit juice powder. It's delicious. It's refreshing. It comes in a variety of flavors, including the new keto-friendly lemonade, pink grapefruit, and no added sugar, and only two grams of carbs, James. I like the way it tastes. I think it's really good for you. Well, they even have a new immunity line in lemon ginger or hot apple cider. Those pack in... 1,000-plus milligrams of essential vitamins C plus B6, B12, and D minerals and all four essential electrolytes with ginger and zinc. Man, are you going to be healthy. It strengthens your routine even during a marathon campaign season. Right. It's total immune support. Well, 76, soon to be 76-year-old runner. He loves it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrate.com slash warroom or enter our promo code warroom, that's all one word, at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com slash warroom and enter promo code warroom for 25% off your first order. That's one hell of a deal. Drinkhydrant.com slash warroom and enter promo code warroom to save 25%. I hope I've gotten that across and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast where the water meets the wellness. Hey, James, Dr. Kathleen Ballou is a professor of history at the University of Chicago and one of the foremost authorities on the white power movement. She's author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Dr. Ballou, we have a lot to talk to you about. We are honored to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The president and attorney general Barr dismissed the white power movement as a bunch of kind of straggling guys in a log cabin somewhere, lone wolves, unconnected, no really big threat. You profoundly disagree. Why? Well, first of all, this movement has been with us for quite a long time. Um, my my book is a history of the movement and its formation in the post-Vietnam War mo moment. Um, and then really charts the way that it evolved as a social movement, largely unopposed from the late 1970s through the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 um, and and went on such that it could be with us in the present. Uh, it's amazing. It's a grab bag of haters and bigots, Klan, neo-Nazis, immigrant bashers, militias, skinheads. You go on and on. Some of the extreme anti-tax protesters. But 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 it's not. I mean, they're they're connected. I think you you point out they have a common purpose, which is really to be achieved by a race war and violence. 
Yes. So it's a social movement that in every way but race is actually quite diverse. It's in all parts of the country. It's in rural, suburban, and urban areas. It includes men and women and children. It includes religious leaders and felons and veterans and active duty troops. So it really has, you know, it's a small group of people, but it has quite a wide um, and deeply interconnected fringe uh, footprint. And one of the interesting things about it is that I think people have spent a lot of time trying to categorize the groups that you've just outlined. Um, in other words, trying to count how many Klansmen, how many Nazis, which symbol goes with which group, which slogan should go with which ideology. But that's actually not how this worked for activists on the ground. They often moved between different groups. Many of them had multiple memberships at the same time. So if you look at a major uh, event of this movement, say the Aryan Nations World Congress in the mid-80s, what you would see is um, an event that brought together all of these activists in the same place in the name of white power and war on the government. Um, and they burned crosses for the Klansmen, but they also lit swastikas for the neo-Nazis. They heard sermons from Christian identity preachers um, and also plotted race war. And then they had a big, robust social movement. Um, so they had things like volleyball games and a big spaghetti dinner and, um, you know, matchmaking schemes to 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 meet uh, to help young white power activists meet one another. A volleyball game to celebrate the anniversary of the Third Reich. That's, that's remarkable. Trump is their guy. If he he's going to lose. James and I convinced he's going to lose big. What does this do to the white power movement? Does it diminish them or embolden them to strike back harder? Well, so one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that he is their guy only to a point. Um, this movement is not at at its heart interested in the United States and some version of the United States, which is to say, I think sometimes people hear white nationalism and think that what it means is a sort of overzealous patriotism. But from 1983 forward, the nation in white nationalism is not the United States. The nation in white nationalism is thought of as the Aryan nation. They're interested in a white ethnostate or a transnational white polity. Um, and in some iterations, they're even interested in campaigns to clear the world of all non-white people such that they can have an all-white world. All of this is fundamentally anti-democratic and anti-United States. Um, so to the extent that they embrace Trump, and I think some of them are doing that right now, often what we're seeing is this sort of opportunistic use of Trump for these other purposes, um, which brings me to, you know, the most dire warning I have right now is that, um, you know, even in the most generous interpretation of President Trump's remarks about the Proud Boys at the debate, the stand back and stand by remark, even if he meant to tell them to stand down, the effect of that comment has been to call to arms an entire array of activists, not just the Proud Boys, but as you say, parts of the militia groups, parts of Boogaloo, as well as a web of underground activists. All of these people are called to arms, and I don't have any reason to think that he also has the authority to command them to stop once he has unleashed that force. Uh, this is a kind of off-wall question, but I've always suspected this. Do, do people that own these kind of groups, do they experience like sexual frustration issues at, at a greater percent than the general population? 
You know, we don't have information um, robust enough to make any kind of statistical claim, but I guess I will say that, um, so, so there are some stories of figures in this movement who are famously sexually frustrated. One of them is uh, David Lane, who's given the nickname Lone Wolf, actually, and one of the reasons that Lone Wolf becomes a moniker for this kind of violence, a false moniker, as we could discuss. Um, so he's someone who is described in the archive quite consistently as being sexually frustrated. But once he does violence for the movement and goes to prison, he then um, marries someone who becomes an activist in her own right and has several other uh, kind of sexual relationships through pen pal while incarcerated. Um, and so the sexual frustration is sometimes used as a, um, I suppose, as a reward for people. And I think I I would need to double check my notes, but I believe Richard Butler of Aryan Nations or one of the other major leaders said something like, we will have many wives waiting for Brother Lane when he comes out of prison. Um, and this movement did condone polygamy. So he meant that literally. Um, but so that's the story for some people. But I think I want to underscore to you that this is also a movement made possible by women and women's relationships and women's activism. Um, historians and journalists have missed that story a lot of the time, um, possibly because we have an idea of activism that is familiar from kind of a feminist and leftist mode. But these women were doing activist activity to support this work. And, and by that, I mean they were doing everything from running their own auxiliary groups and printing their own newspapers to sharing homeschool curricula and recipes and coupons and things like that to things like driving getaway cars and disguising people when they were on the lam. Um, these women were incredibly important to the movement and the marriages and other social relationships between groups that cemented alliances really relied on women's participation. That, that's such a great point because you know, I, I get to these things and, you know, the right wingers screaming and, and everything. And it always seemed to me that the, the, the women were more intense in their belief and hatred than the men. I mean, they were just like really, you know, off the wall when they were like interviewing these people that came to Bethesda. It, it was there was a lot of women. It, it, and, you know, I guess in this day and age, you know, we we you know, we look, look at you know how active they they are and i think that they are you i think you're exactly right what, what you tell me makes total sense is there like a publication or a journal that they have is there a site that they go to if people want to learn about it you know all these movements have some pseudo intellectual rationale for themselves is there any place that people can go get that well, you know, as a rule, I don't like to direct people to the actual movement sites. Um, some scholarship has indicated that, um, first of all, that's what they would like to happen because they do get membership that way. Um, I would encourage people to read some of the scholarship and materials that are coming out um, from people who are watching the movement. Um, so there's a great book coming out by Cynthia Miller Idris um, about this. There's um, There are some excellent resources coming out of outfits like the Southern Poverty Law Center that are keeping track of what people believe and why. Um, and when you think of like, I mean, as one example, the major ideological center point text for this is still the Turner Diaries, which is a, uh, 
I mean, they would see it as a utopia and I see it as dystopian. It's a novel from the late 1970s that um, was tremendously popular in the movement. Um, and the reason it is so popular, if if your reader or your, if your listeners end up looking at this book, um, is not because it is a good novel, I think you will notice quite quickly, um, but because it fills this really critical imagination problem for the movement, which is how do they think that this very small group of people can possibly succeed in what they want to do. They're trying to take down the most militarized super state in world history. And they think that a fringe movement can do this, right? It's a huge problem. So Turner Diaries is important because it answers that question. And it lays out, as fantastic as it seems, it lays out a scheme through which a small number of dedicated guerrilla soldiers can create civic unrest and mass violence such that they awaken the rest of the white population, um, uh, divide the country into partition zones, carry out campaigns of genocide, provoke a nuclear war, and end up taking over the United States. And then, I will add, um, then committing campaigns of mass genocide on all populations of color all around the world in order to ensure a all-white planet. Now, that, I think, is clearly a, like, the that's the kind of the farthest degree of extremist violence within this imaginary. There are people in this movement who are not committed to that entire chain of events, right? Um, many people argue for something much smaller, like a white homeland or an ethno state. Um, but the Turner Diaries is still important to them because it shows the path um, by which you can translate extremist activism and violence into the kind of change that these people are seeking. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, has, I think, been very forthright that these these groups present, you know, a really clear and present danger. Uh, and the vast majority of violent incidents the past several years have come from these hate groups. But but you you read this, the attorney general of the United States, the chief law enforcement officer, seems to really, if not dismiss, downplay that. I mean, do you have any, I mean, that must surprise you. Um. I, I think historians are not often surprised by this kind of a problem, but I mean, it's appalling to be sure. Um, the Homeland Threat Assessment that came out yesterday outlines that not only is uh, white power domestic terrorism the largest threat um, or the largest terrorist threat to the nation, but that we are in the most violent period we've seen since the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, that report from Trump's own DHS says that 2019 was the most, uh, you know, the most violent uh, year for this movement since 1995 with the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and just to remind people, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was the largest deliberate mass casualty on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. But people are still kind of walking around without an understanding of what that was and what it meant. I think most people still think of that event as the work of one or a few people, perhaps lone wolves, perhaps bad apples. But that event was the work of a social movement. Timothy McVeigh and his co-conspirators were part of this broad social movement. They attacked a building that had been in the crosshairs of this activism since at least 1983. Um, and they did it using playbooks that had been clearly outlined um, for quite a while, including the Turner Diaries, which McVeigh himself was carrying photocopies from when he carried out the, the bombing. Now, the fact that we are in this moment of intense fatalities from this movement 
really requires public attention because what we tend to do, um, and this is the result of many kinds of problems, and I'm not blaming any one kind of sphere of our society for this, but what we tend to do is treat this as lone wolf violence. So what we get are stories about the El Paso shooting as anti-immigrant violence, the Christchurch shooting as Islamophobic Islamophobic violence, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting as anti-Semitic violence, the Charleston Bible study murders as anti-Black violence. And they are all of those things, but they are all also white power violence carried out by people who are using the same worldview, the same ideologies, the same symbols, the same slogans, and in many cases who are connected to each other through social network activism, sometimes online. That sphere of mass attack is the same story as the parts of the Boogaloo movement that are interested in race war, the parts of the militia movement that are interested in race war, and the underground machinations of groups like Adam Waffen and the base, um, which are attempting mass casualties and paramilitary training um, that we, we won't get the archive of those for another decade or two, but it's clearly happening. So the work ahead is to do, um, you know, to pay enough attention to this beyond one media moment, but to connect all of these stories such that we can see this rising tide that demands our response. Wow. Someone send that report uh, to the attorney general. You know, I we learned in journalism when I began many years ago, you, you just don't mention the word Hitler. You could talk about Stalinist and fascist, but but, you know, but not Hitler. But these guys, these these people, men and women, they really are Hitlerian. That is interesting. I, well, I want to hear more about the instruction not to mention that. Anytime people tell you not to mention something from history, it makes me very uh, interested and my ears perk up and I want to know more. Um, it, it just sort of was a custom. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't trying to be politically correct. It's just, you know, no one could be that bad. You can't compare anything to the Holocaust or slavery. I see. I mean, I would just say that many of these activists would proudly proclaim their allegiance with Hitler. So, um, I, I mean, part of the work here is simply to listen to what they are saying and to take seriously that it represents a coherent worldview. Right. James. It's a, 88 is a big thing. It's the eighth letter of the alphabet, how Hitler. Right. And 88 is a big So I'm a veteran. And it's no secret that veterans and police officers have more skill and background. And that they, they really try to really, and I know it's a problem in the Marine Corps, even among active duty, uh, that, that they're having to deal with. Do they have enhanced recruitment of police and, and veterans? Is that a part of their target group? Absolutely. And they've been trying to do that since the post-Vietnam War moment. But let me be really clear about the argument that I'm making in my book about veterans, because I want to make sure that this is clear. Um, There is a relationship between the aftermath of warfare and surges in Um, Ku Klux Klan activity and then later white power activity. If you look at the ebbs and flows of those groups across American history, um, the aftermath of warfare is a better predictor for intensity of vigilante violence or revolutionary violence by these groups than many other factors. Um, And I would put on that list, it's a better predictor than surges in immigration, civil rights advances, economic problems, um, or even poverty. So for instance, these groups are very, very uh, quiet during the Great Depression. Um, 
So we see a clear relationship between the aftermath of combat and white power or clan activity. Um, so one might wonder whether that has to do with returning veterans. And it turns out that this is not exactly that clear because it turns out that the scholarship shows that all of American society becomes more violent in the aftermath of warfare. But it's a phenomenon that goes across age, across gender, across service record. All of us are more available for this kind of violent activity in the aftermath of warfare. Um, I mean, this raises questions about the integrity of our, our social norms in those moments. Um, now, yes, these groups have targeted veterans and active duty troops specifically because they have skill sets that are usable for white power violence. So we see over and over again things like white power groups seeking out veterans and active duty troops specifically to get access to armories and, and um, other weapons stores on posts and bases, specifically to do paramilitary training um, for munitions expertise and explosives expertise and on and on like this. However, within the total group of returning veterans or active duty troops, I think we're talking about a very small number, um, perhaps not even a statistically significant number. Um, it's certainly not the story of veterans in any way at all, but it is the story of the white power movement because those few who do join have this skill set that dramatically escalates um, the kinds of violence this movement can carry out. And I think that, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the response by the military to this has taken quite a long time to get together. So there was an order in the early 1980s saying that active duty troops could not participate um, actively in white power groups, but it's not until 1996 that they're prohibited from joining and not until the last year have they really started to tamp down on things like flying a, a Confederate flag inside of a barracks. Um, even though we know that the Confederate flag, which of course has complex meaning, but we know it's been used for clan recruitment since at least, well, I mean, arguably for more than a century, but I mean, I have pictures of white power activists doing this in, um, in the barracks in Coochie, for instance. So I think reasonable people can agree that there's a problem um, with, you know, that you can't be fulfilling an oath of induction that calls on you to protect the nation from enemies, foreign and domestic, and be a participant in a movement that is trying to violently overthrow the nation at the same time. I think reasonable people can agree on that. But I think, you know, the Pentagon has really struggled with how to respond and also preserve freedom of association and freedom of speech for people who are serving. So I, I, I think it was Hannah Arndt talked about the banality of evil. Yes. And when I was teaching at Tulane, I, I had my students had to do a cultural project. They had to go somewhere out of their comfort zone, you know, spend a week in, a, in an African-American church or on a shrimp boat or anything else. So two of my better students spent a week with the militia, a weekend. And they all gathered somewhere in the Chaplai Basin and they had practice guns and families. And they came back and they said, you know, they actually... Like they're nice people. I mean, they you know they they were cooking families and and everything, and they were, you know, waiting for the order to start the the white revolution or something. Yeah. And just as you turned, as you talked about, they have like potluck suppers, and somebody gets sick, they you know dies, they bring a casserole over. Yeah. It, it, they don't just stick out, and you know they look like they're everywhere, and they look and for the most part act like normal people. Yes. 
And I mean, that, and the thing to really underscore is that all of that social activity, and I would add to that list, you know, these activists go to church in the movement, they get their marital counseling in the movement, they pick each other up from the airport, they share grocery coupons, they um, babysit each other's kids, all of that creates this web from which they then can, can pursue violent activism. Right. I, I just thought I could have two kids an A plus to say the least. Yeah. Well, I give an A plus to uh, our guest, James. Uh, I mean, we we talk about politics a lot. I think we know a little bit about it. We we have learned so much these last have 20 we? minutes. And anyone anyone who's listening, I want you to read Kathleen Ballou's Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and para and paramilitary America. I think she's working next on a book on guns, which I can't wait to read. But uh, she has been one of our great guests. And we thank you so much, Dr. Ballou. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. As you can imagine, keeping up with James takes a lot of energy. He's always on to something. James, you can answer this question. Big debate. I like Frosted. My two-and-a-half-year-old grandchild says, no, Pop-Pop, it's Blueberry. What do you think? I'm with the grandchild. Are you? I thought you'd I like Blueberry. It it tastes good. Zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving of either the cocoa, fruity, Frosted or my grandson's favorite blueberry, uh, and it really does taste good. It's a, it's amazing. It's, it's. I don't like healthy food usually, uh, so that's why this has been such a delightful surprise. And it's keto friendly, gluten free, grain free, soy free, low carb, and GMO free. I mean, you're just left with the good stuff, James. Give it a shot. You bet. Go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code warroom, that's one word, at checkout to get the free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee, which means if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. I like that. You know, Trump donors should ask for something like that. Right. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Okay, James, we have Andrew Weissman as a guest, legendary prosecutor, Robert Morgenthau, Tom Dewey, Elliot Ness, Ness wrapped into one, prosecuted top mobsters, prosecuted the Enron scandal executives, general counsel of the FBI, and senior member of Robert Mueller's investigation of the Russian interference in the 16 election. Written a new book, Where the Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation, where he thinks his former boss wasn't tough enough in investigating and charging Donald Trump. Andrew, thank you for being with us. And I know you have great respect for Bob Mueller, but the ultimate failure, was it he lost a step or two? He was sandbagged by Deputy AG Rosenstein or what? Well, he certainly had a number of challenges. I mean, you have to remember it's not usual that the people that you're investigating have the power to fire you and to um, give pardons or dangle pardons. So, you know, you mentioned I prosecuted organized crime cases and I prosecuted Enron. Those are hard cases to bring, but one thing that you don't have to worry about is Enron executives and organized crime figures, you know, they can't fire you um, and they don't have the power to pardon. So, you know, Bob was facing a lot of challenges. Um, and he also, I think, assumed that Attorney General Barr, uh, who came in at the end, was going to be an institutionalist and was not 
going to be the person who we now all know him to be. So there were a, there were a lot of challenges. Um, having said that, you know there there are places where in the book I describe you know where I respectfully disagree with decisions he made, and I try and lay out his thinking and my thinking. Right. Not even uh, not insisting that Trump agreed to an interview, not acknowledging that the clear case that you laid out uh, on uh, uh, a cover up, uh, an obstruction, not saying specifically. Was Rosenstein, the deputy AG, I mentioned earlier, did he really try to sandbag the investigation? Well, um, you know, Rosenstein's such an interesting figure because he definitely he, you know, appointed uh, Bob Mueller. So that's that's like on the plus side. Um, here's a negative that I recount in my book, which is um, he asked our office not to coordinate with any state prosecutors so that we wouldn't undermine um, any potential presidential pardon. Um, and um, I point out that Mueller's deputy agreed to that condition, um, which, you know, I, I don't understand the logic of agreeing to that. So we weren't able to provide uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office um, with the kind of information that we typically would. Um, and, you know, this is a very timely discussion because I think just this morning, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office won yet another court battle in trying to get the accounting records yeah, he he's dead. On, you know, I have read, I actually read the Mueller report twice, and then the collusion or, or coordination, uh, maybe there wasn't enough for a conviction, but there's a lot of stuff. But on the obstruction, it was off the charts. Now, I, I just want to ask you this, leaving aside whether Trump, after he loses this election, which he's going to, if he tries to pardon himself, 2021, if you were the attorney general, would you prosecute him? That is, that is a hard question. Um, you know, and this is the problem of journalists interviewing lawyers is, you know, what you tend to get is it depends. Um, look, on the one hand, you don't want to turn into Ukraine um, or what you, Ukraine used to be where you just go after your political opponents as President Yanukovych did. On the other hand, you certainly don't want to set a precedent where just because you win the presidency, you suddenly aren't going to be prosecuted for crimes you committed either before uh, becoming president or while you were president. Um, but assuming uh, you get through the legal issues, I think there'd be a pretty strong case for holding him to account. Um, this may become somewhat moot because it may be that you know, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, or the New York Attorney General's Office that both have you know criminal and civil cases that they're they may actually uh, be able to bring on separate issues. They're not on the issues that you dealt it, with. Exactly, they're they're um, right. on separate issues. So you would let you would you would be inclined at this stage at least to let them handle it, uh, handle that, and not and not try to bring you know a separate prosecution on the obstruction. It, you know, it, it, I have to tell you, it depends. I know you'd love a clean answer, and I tend to try to do that. But <laughs> we love to we love to oversimplify. Yeah, I Andrew. just I just think that there's so many issues um, that you'd consider, and you know, one would be if there is a another criminal case that's viable that's going forward um uh that might be you know another factor you'd obviously want to hear from uh the president's you know for former president's counsel about what you know why we shouldn't go forward um so what i have said in the past is i think the new attorney general i think she's going to have a really tough decision on this one so first of all thanks for being on the show uh i gotta tell you myself and a lot of democrats 
we don't have a lot of faith in federal law enforcement. And what we would say is, Andrew, so Bill Clinton is being investigated for I don't know how many years, and he has to testify for two hours on a case about, uh, in a a dismissed with prejudice lawsuit about sex. And Donald Trump is being investigated for some of the most serious charges that that one can imagine, and his lawyers answer interrogatories. We would also say that Jim Comey stands up and says, we're not going to indict Hillary Clinton, but this was reprehensible conduct. And in a week before the election, he, he puts out another thing. Then Mueller goes to great things, said, I can't say anything because if you don't indict somebody, it is ultimately fair. Not If you're not going to put an indictment, don't say anything. Now, if you want to know how great a person Jim Comey is, please ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> Why? The press had no outrage at this. No one said, you know, she didn't have a chance to answer himself. The, 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 the that said, we're not going to charge her, but what she did was terrible. Of course, if we found out, it wasn't very bad at all. And, they, and if you can name me the last Democratic special prosecutor, I'll fall out of his chair because I can't remember it. And I just think that, and I know you're part of it. I think you're an honest guy. I don't know if you have a partisan political bone in your body. But I think on the whole, this whole crap is very pro-Republican. That's just my view. Uh, so, so let me. Um, I, I address a lot of that in the book, and I am no fan of uh, Jim Comey, and I think what he did in um, July and in October of 2016 is beyond deplorable. It violated all DOJ guidelines, and I don't buy for a minute the "I was between a rock and a hard place, and I only had two choices." Um, you know, one of the choices he could have made in October was to actually do the investigation um, of the, you know, which only took a week, and they found that it was completely duplicative. Um, the other, which I recount in my book, is he actually knew at the time that um, there were other emails out there that Uma Abedin had, but they'd already made the decision that um, they were highly unlikely to be. Um, relevant because she just didn't wasn't she didn't perform that kind of role with classified information, and you know one of the things I recount is where was that in the letter? Um, in other words, if he's going to submit a letter, how about putting in um, the fact that you'd already made a determination these were unlikely to have anything, as opposed to dangling them out there as if this could be you know the mother load. So that was that was um, really harmful to the Department of Justice. And I agree with you. You know, I worked for the department for 20 years and I'm one of those, you know, you know, career people who work for Democrats and Republicans. We keep our head down and it doesn't matter to us what whether we're prosecuting a Democrat or a Republican. We just look at the facts and the law. Um, my concern switching to, you know, the, the comparison of Clinton and Trump, um, you know, your point about, you know, should Trump have been subpoenaed is, you know, with all due respect to Bob Mueller, who was motivated by, you know, the purest and purest of of uh, reasons in terms of trying to be fair uh, to somebody, uh, to the presidency. Um, my concern was exactly, I think, what you're getting at, which is um, this idea of what's the precedent you're setting. 
um, where the next, God forbid, the next special counsel or independent counsel we have that's investigating the White House, um, it's going to be really hard to insist that the president um, actually sit down for an interview because they're going to point to what we did and said, look, in a case that's really serious with really, really um, uh, crimes that could be um, go right to the heart of a, a criminal investigation where his intent, the president's intent is so central. Even then you didn't require him to sit for an interview. You had just a few written questions and not even on everything. The written questions were only on the obstruction and not on the Russian interference. So I, I was very concerned about the precedent we were setting. And again, you know, total respect for Bob Mueller. He's a patriot and he was not acting out of any improper motivations but i you know i just respectfully disagree with that call yeah i and william barr i mean here you are you're a career prosecutor but by everything a a, a really good one but you know one of the legends and william barr who is the attorney general of the united states just flat out lied about your report Did, did that make you angry like how could that guy say that I open the book with March on March 24th, 2019, a day I, I still remember. I'm driving to Washington from New York where, um, you know, where I live, and uh, CNN reports on his so-called summary letter, his four-page letter, and I just thought that CNN just got it totally wrong. I thought that can't possibly be the case, and then I got home in Washington, pulled up the letter, and... Um, I recount both in the beginning and the end of the book all of the ways that it was um, at, at best misleading. Um, just, um, you know, here's just one example of that. Um, even with Russian interference, he couldn't bring himself to say it accurately and just said, well, Russia was trying to sow discord in the election. That's not what happened. Russia, and it was com- devastating overwhelming evidence. Russia was on the side of Trump. They were trying to get Trump elected, both in the primary and in the general. And they were trying to suppress the vote for Hillary Clinton um, with respect to um, trying to get uh, uh, black and brown voters not to support her, um, trying to get Bernie Sanders um, supporters to not like her. I mean, and he couldn't say that. He couldn't bring himself um, to actually just be honest about what happened. And you know, this is where I mean, now it's a commonplace to look at what Barr did and say, of course, he's political. But at the time, um, when we first saw that letter, we knew um, that Barr was not an institutionalist and that he was going to undermine the rule of law, which, by the way, is the impetus for why I called the book Where Law Ends, which is a reference to a, a quote that is on the limestone walls of the Department of Justice, which is where law ends, tyranny begins. Right. Albert, to you, I'd like to make one question. You just said that the Attorney General of the United States tr- tried to undermine the rule of law. That, that's not a minor. That's not a minor observation. Thank you, Albert. Well, it's in the you know tradition of John Mitchell and a few others, but it really is just uh, stunning. Andrew, I, I just want to go back. I, I want to wrap up a couple things that still perplex me because I follow this pretty closely and I knew some of these characters. Roger Stone. Uh, two weeks uh, uh, earlier, he had said Podesta's emails are going to come out. We know the Russians did that. They did come out. We know Stone was in touch with the Russians. I've always wondered why that was not a prosecutable case. 
and also about why you want to br- why you recommend bringing Stone back before a grand jury next year. So, I mean, obviously Roger Stone was prosecuted for something that was really clean and clear, which was his lying uh, under oath to Congress. So a lot of times what you do as a prosecutor is you pick your cleanest and clearest and strongest cases. And I sort of discuss that in the book about decisions we're making so that you don't and I, this is something that you do even before the special counsel's office. I used to tell my um, attorneys, um, don't look for gray. In a criminal case, that's not what you should be doing. You should be looking for clear violations of the law. Um, and um, what I say about with respect to Roger Stone is, look, we don't know yet. Um, why did he lie to Congress? Why not just tell the truth? What was it about the truth that was going to be so harmful? Well, now that he's been given clemency by the president um, and he's avoided any jail sentence, that's that should not be the end of it. If you want to know what happened, you can just put him in the grand jury and ask him the questions. And the first questions I would ask is, why did you lie to Congress? And I know a lot of people who are listening might just say, well, he might lie again. Well, guess what? If he lies again and Trump is no longer the president, he can be prosecuted and he won't get clemency the next time. Um, so like, let's get it, let's get at the answers. Did you always, did you have suspicions beyond suspicions about how he knew in advance, uh, that the Russians were going to put out the Podesta email and, and, and also, by the way, point out, they put it out the day and they put Hillary's email out the day, uh, hours after the access Hollywood. That did not seem to me to be accidental timing. Of, of course not. This is, let's have a grown up conversation. I mean, this is, these are you know, Roger Stone for, all of his fault is a smart, wily guy, and he's been in this business for a long time. Um, this is no accident. And so what you want to know is what were his, his conversations with uh, WikiLeaks? Um, what were the communications? And what were the communications um, with uh, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign to coordinate this? But there's no way that the release of those documents an hour after the Access Hollywood tape was coincidental. That was clearly something that was planned to try and distract from you know, a really devastating story. And the Russians had to coordinate it with somebody. Or had to have, get a heads up from somebody. But uh, it, let me ask you, just, let me just try one more. Uh, the Christopher Steele dossier. A, raw intelligence file that exaggerated some stuff, got some stuff wrong, but got the main points right. Or B, a partisan hit job or a victim of Russian disinformation. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that just because it was so irrelevant to what we were doing in the special counsel investigation. I know there's a lot of press and speculation about how it played into what the FBI was doing um, prior to our being on the scene. And there's obviously clear evidence that that was not the impetus for opening the investigation. But in terms of what we were doing, um, it played, I mean, I know for Team Manafort, which I led, it just had no relevance. It wasn't going to lead to sort of the concrete evidence that you need for an indictment or a report. Um, so, you know, my my guess is it's probably a mixture of, of both things. Um, and a lot of times intelligence um, is like that. So Andrew, I've been a, not, a, not a very good law student, a worse lawyer, and I've been in the bar <laughs> since 30 years now. But my understanding of the law is if the new attorney general comes in and tells General Flynn or Roger Stone, we're going to immunize you against anything you do with self-incrimination, but we can't immunize you against perjury, that judge can force them to testify. 
Is that correct? Is that a correct interpretation of the law? James, you do not need to go back to law school because that is absolutely right. Um, that um, immunity replaces your Fifth Amendment. In other words, you you can say I'm not going to testify because I'm concerned about criminal exposure. The government can then confer immunity on you and you can be forced to testify. Um, but that does not give you immunity if you then choose to lie um, in the grand jury um, about what you're asked. So, you know, with Roger Stone, that's a clear thing that can be done. With Michael Flynn, it's not clear we're even at that stage yet um, because uh, it's not clear that that case, what's going to happen in that case now because uh, Judge Sullivan's still deciding it. Yeah, that guy that 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 Gleason or whatever his name is, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want that son of a bitch after me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, James, I have to defend him. You know, when I was when I was a young prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn, I went to the organized crime section as a you know young attorney in 1992, and my boss at the time was John Gleason, and he was in the middle of trying the John Gotti case, and he is a phenomenal lawyer, phenomenal prosecutor. Um, and, you know, he wrote, he wrote, I thought, a very clear-eyed um, and devastating brief. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, my impression, I've, I've read about him and I watched, a, you know, Hero's channel about how they took the mafia down. And he was, he was responsible as anybody for doing that. I mean, he really was. Absolutely. Was highly confident, man. Yep, highly. Out to you. The Dunham Investigation. Uh, is it on the level, do you think, Andrew? Um, here's here's a really concerning uh, fact that we, we all know. His number two, Nora Dennehy, uh, resigned just a few weeks ago with no explanation. Um, not only did she come back to the U.S. Attorney's Office to be on this investigation at his request, her husband is the number two person in um, the Durham uh, Connecticut U.S. Attorney's Office. So she has, you know, deep ties to John and to that office. You do not resign with no explanation from an investigation this important unless something is deeply wrong. Um, if it was for personal reasons, something would have been put out saying that so that there wouldn't be this kind of speculation. And the only thing I think the public, of which I'm now a part, can hope is that that is a real brushback to um, John Durham that, you know what, you really have to adhere to longstanding DOJ policies that you do not do what James Carville was talking about. You do not do what, what Jim Comey did in 2016. You do not bring these kinds of cases shortly before an election unless there's- And is he willing to stand up to the attorney general? We shall see. You know, he certainly didn't when the IG report came out and he issued a, a press release that was bizarre and he received a lot of criticism. He, As you may recall, he issued a press release saying, you know, we've got a separate investigation and we know a lot of other factors and we disagree with the IG. And it turns out after the IG testified, the disagreement was on something really arcane that I know about because I was the general counsel of the FBI, which was the level of predication under internal FBI rules that would have made no difference at all to anything that the public cares about. So um, that that press release was was unusual to say the least. But I think he got so much negative attention. You know, you're hoping that that John. Um, is really going to adhere to the finest traditions of the department. So 
Andrew, uh, my, my nephew was the youngest U.S. magistrate. He's like the, in Middle District of Louisiana. He's like 36. He's summa cum laude, Georgetown law, he's, as opposed to his uncle. And he said, Uncle James, they can get anything that they want as long as it's not your lawyer or your wife. <laughs> and the point is, federal law enforcement has staggering power. And that power at times can be misused. Are, are you confident that the internal checks within the Justice Department are such that we won't have a replication of, of, of apparently the Ted Stevens thing was pretty egregious? I know the thing in New Orleans where they, the whole office had to resign. Uh, they, they were writing letters to the editor under fake names. Are you are you confident that the internal checks in the Justice Department are sufficient to make sure that that power is used for the best of purposes? I'm not. Um, you know, let me let me start by saying the vast vast majority of career people are doing the right thing, and we all would be extremely proud of them. But when you've got leadership that is not displaying the 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 attributes that that we care about it makes it very difficult i'll tell you a quick anecdote which is when i was investigating enron we talked to the head of the compliance program at enron i mean that sounds like a joke right there um and he actually was a really good guy and he was saying look andrew what did you what did what could we do when you were trying to instill an ethical culture but the company is run by Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling. It doesn't matter what we do um, because the people at the top are setting, uh, you know, an example that makes everyone know that what we're doing is a window dressing. So, you know, that's my my current concern. And it, you know, whenever we're in the post-Trump era, I think that the Department of Justice is going to have to go above and beyond in terms of transparency and. Um, being really clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it um, so that there can be a restoration of confidence in the Department of Justice that we believe in the rule of law and we're not a banana republic. All right. Well, just so you didn't want to make one negative and turn it over to Al, but I've just been, I love having you on the show. You're a very honest guy. Brendan Sullivan represented Ted Stevens and represented the client in New Orleans. And he said the New Orleans office was three times worse than what they did to Stevens. And Brendan Sullivan is a pretty good lawyer. I think we'll agree on that. <laughs> yeah, I think he's, he's uh, I've heard he's not a potted plant. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I tell you, I want, I want Judge Gleason, Brendan Sullivan, or Andrew Weissman uh, if I get in trouble with you, James. Listen, Andrew, you have been terrific. You've given us lots of time. It's lots of insights. The book is Where the Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation by Andrew Weissman, who, as James says, is a legend. Andrew, be safe, uh, and I hope we'll talk again soon. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to run into you when all this crap is over. <laughs> Have lunch at the palm. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for, having, thanks for having me on. People all over the country are feeling this anxiety, and they should turn to Steady MD. That's your personal doctor online. It's telehealth done right. First, you take a quiz to get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle and your health needs. Next, you have a one-hour appointment with your doctor to start a real relationship, and after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. The doctors take their time to listen and give you the personal attention you deserve, James. Uh, you know, you get a lot of anxiety here, and you watch Trump's doctors. Of course, they like everybody else with Trump. They're forced, they're forced to lie. But I tell you, this, this product, these, these doctors are going to tell you the truth every time. 
It sure is. And I'm, I'm lucky. We have a great doctor, but a lot of people don't. This is unlimited access to a doctor for only $99 a month, all with no additional visit fees or copays, and no insurance required. SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages. James, it goes up to us in all. I got to talk to my doctor. I just FaceTime. Yeah. I don't need to drive to right. LSU Medical School. It's in all 50 you know? states. You go to SteadyMD.com slash War Room to take the free quiz and see which doctor is a perfect fit for you at Steady.com slash War Room. No risk, no long-term commitment. Just get started. Steady.com slash War Room. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. James, we have a bunch of questioners uh, who have sent in, I think, some really challenging questions, and let's try to deal with them. Simon from Queensland, Australia, where they have compulsory voting, looks at America and he says, I often hear I don't vote because my vote doesn't count, whether I'm living in a red or blue place. So it does count. And, and, And let's talk about two places that it might count. Do the Democrats have a shot at flipping Texas or Georgia? You have to say that they do. All right. If, if, because in Texas and Georgia, you both had enormously high Republican turnout in 2018, and they were both really close. And I, I just don't buy it. What's happening is everybody thought in Texas particularly was could be driven by demographic change with more non-whites being a greater percentage of the state. And what happened in 2018 is we have a massive shift among college-educated whites. Georgia, you have shift among college-educated whites, but you really have an influx of non-whites in Georgia. And people forget there's a lot of African-American in-migration in Georgia. And I, I, I got to tell you, I, I think Georgia is a little better, is a better chance than Texas, but not by much. Well, let me go to the question of, of does your vote count? Because, uh, yeah, we're talking about a presidential race. We're talking about two Senate races in Georgia and one in Texas and some really important House races. But there is the Texas legislature, also Georgia, but really Texas, which has been dominated by Republicans for 25 or 30 years. They could flip. So, yes, your vote does count. And the Democrats have a real shot at flipping that Democratic state house in Texas. Right. In, in Georgia, they have all the county elections. I was reading about Gwinnett. County is going to turn totally democratic. So they're voting for the county commissioner and the assessor and everything else. Uh, James, we got it. We got several questions here. We got Alex uh, uh, from Oregon uh, is asking uh, a question, and then uh, someone else on the North Carolina Senate race. Cal Cunningham caught the Democrat caught in a sexting uh, scandal of sorts. Tom Tillis has COVID nineteen and has assorted other problems. How does it shake out uh, twenty six days out? Well, look, I, I'm very, you know, follow that very closely. And you can't say it's good news about Cal Cunningham. Having said that, it's embarrassing. It's a setback. I think it's, as of now, even with some new revelations coming out yesterday, I would put that in the survival category right now. Survival. I mean, it's not anything you want. You know, you but... Just given everything that's going on and given everything about Trump and the Cal Cunningham stuff looks, we can't say Boy Scouts anymore. <laughs> the, the Cal Cunningham stuff looks very, very minor compared. I love the Stormy Daniels, Melania Trump back and forth. <laughs> I can go a year on that. <laughs> uh, we have Sheila and others 
uh, talking about what happens uh, in 2022. She's looking way ahead. The House often flips back then. What are the Democrats and Republicans going to look like uh, two years from now, James? We assume Trump's going to lose big. The Democrats will take the Senate. They'll add to the House. So what are the, what are the two parties going to look like two years from now? We agree on, we disagree on some things, but we agree on, on many things. And one thing we agree on is Tom Etzel is probably as good an observer and commentator on American politics as anybody. And he has a great piece today where, you know, he goes to different academics and people just on how the parties that will reconstruct after the 2020 election. Another significant event that people have not paid enough attention to is Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican of Pennsylvania, saying he's not running again. The 2022 Senate map is as bad for the Republicans as any map I've ever seen. I don't think the Democrats have one vulnerable Senate seat up in 2022. And you're talking about Rubio in Florida, an open seat in North Carolina, open seat in Pennsylvania, Portman, Ohio, a probable open seat in Iowa. Ron Johnson is, is, is like, is, might be, the, and this is a very, very, very tough call, but might be the most odious person in the entire United States Senate. He's up in Wisconsin. And there's some view that one of our guests, David Wickler, the chair of the Democratic Party, is considered justified. Ben, ben, ben Wickler. Ben, ben Wickler, I'm sorry. It is yes, considered to yeah. be one of the best party chairs in that he's actually considered running for the Senate. And I, I, and I think people, a lot of people think that'd be a good idea. He'd be an awful strong candidate. Uh, Ken also wants to know about anything more on the Trump's finances, uh, about uh, his his tax scams, money losing, uh, money laundering, golf courses, obligations to Putin, oligarchs. Uh, the Times story was a tour de force on his taxes, and there's a lot more to come, and it is a roadmap for those prosecutors starting in January. It sure is. Everybody's kind of forgotten about it. <laughs> right. They won't forget. I'll tell you this much. The, 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 the Manhattan DA, the New York Attorney General, ain't going to forget about it. No, no. And, yeah, you know, they interviewed, uh, but it, it, Eric, yesterday about conflating values to get loans. You can get in real trouble for that. If you, you go to a bank and you say you're worth $100,000, but in fact, you're only worth 50000 you can go to penitentiary for that. But I would, of course, no one would put them, the Trump family, beyond doing anything crooked would you <laughs> oh my gosh how could you possibly suggest that i mean look i mean they were the architects of trump university and uh we know they wouldn't do that listen these questions trump water trump steaks <laughs> well that's true too and you had wine too i never drank it yeah the wine i think is still good you get you you drink trump wine no i don't drink it but i think it's still in business Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. I'm glad you don't drink it. Uh, listen, no. uh, these are these are really good, good, good questions. Please send some more in uh, next week, and uh, we'll we'll. I hope you don't stump us, but we'll have interesting conversations about it all. Yeah, and tell us where you, always tell us where you're from. We're interested in, you know, chatting with people all around the country and even Australia. Maybe we we'll you know. Yeah, yeah. We have foreign audiences here, international. Well, our reach, I'll tell you, James, from Paris, Texas to Paris, France, 
Sure. Hey, this was a terrific show, and thank you for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to tweet your questions for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate this show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week as the countdown to this crucial election continues. Please register to vote. We're not a nonpartisan uh, enterprise, but an exception. There's a great group called Our Time, Our Vote to promote and facilitate voting for people with disabilities. There are more than 38 million people with disabilities and voting has been more challenging for them and many have more at stake. This was started by Quinn Bradley and you can go to Our Time, Our Vote. Only you have the power to change the course of this country. It's in your hands. So please tweet your questions to Politicon and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, James.